0: Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, depending on where you are. Thank you so much for joining us on a Friday night to discuss the third book, in Olive Wright Pigeoneer series. This one's called A Courage Undimmed. Stephanie has very kindly signed copies for us, and they are somewhere between Stephanie and the Poison Pen, but they should be in at any moment on Monday, I would guess, right? Did they get picked up last night? They did get picked up, right? So they should be over. Anyway, um, it's been our pleasure to talk to Stephanie about the first two books in this series. But for those of you who don't know them, maybe we should go back, Stephanie, and review just a little bit about the concept for this nifty series. So take us back to Olive Bright Pigeoneer.
1: Okay, so at the the start of the series, um, basically uh, Olive is a young veterinary student who returns from London at the start of World War II. Um, She's back in her village and trying to find a way to um, contribute to the war effort a little bit more than knitting socks and some of the other things that the Women's Institute are doing. And so um, also at the same time, her family raises pigeons and Uh, they're hoping that the National Pigeon Service will take on their lofts pigeons to put them to work for the war effort. So she's kind of um, worried because she wants to go off, but she's worried about her pigeons. So everything works out beautifully when um, a a secret intelligence organization kind of recruits her and her pigeons for um, some war work. And um, so it, that's basically the gist of the first book her get, getting to getting familiarized with um the job of, of a pigeon and reporting to someone else and and all of that and of course solving a murder and then the second book she's kind of become a little bit more comfortable she's um working not only as a pigeon but as a fanny which is uh basically a general dog's body plenty of women were um were uh, signed up to be fanny, and um, they would do anything from be drivers, do laundry, administrative tasks, whatever was required. And so she's doing both of those jobs and kind of is getting a little more involved in the intelligence side of things because her commanding officer has started to trust her a little bit and um, really see the value in the pigeons before he wasn't 100% convinced. And so that's all kind of smoothed out between the two of them. And so that this book, um, uh, Jamie, who is her commanding officer, is has taken a leave of absence um, due to a medical reason. And there's a new um, officer in charge at, at the manor that, that she's working at. And he does not put much stock in Olive or her pigeons. So she's kind of feeling a little bit threatened. And a little bit worried about her continued role because she had already been feeling a little like she was she was assisting vicariously through her pigeon. She didn't feel like she was doing enough. And now she feels like with this new person in charge, she's even gonna be downgraded even more.
0: Okay. Well, let's so, back up just a minute. First place, I know you know what Fanny needs, but often people who write historical mysteries. Assume right. that everybody else does. So, why don't you tell us what the acronym stands for?
1: I almost did that and then just slid slid by. Um, it stands for First Aid Nursing Yeomanry. Was started up in the prior to the now. I'm, now I'm not remembering right. Not prior to the First World War, I believe. And um, it, they were basically uh, frontline line uh, between. They would transport uh, injured soldiers between the front lines and the field hospital hospitals. Initially on horses, and then they were driving ambulances. so but then it all kind of morphed into, um, as I said, some of them went on to the transport services and continued being involved in transportation, and others just did various odd jobs in in various capacities. So that is officially what what she the that's the um, organization that she's officially affiliated with.
0: So basically, it's women supporting other services or other activities under kind of a general, you know, sort of like the civil service, but only for women in, in the war. Um, if you read Maisie Dobbs, the Jacqueline Winspear series, you know that Maisie was an ambulance driver in the First World War. Um, and so, right, okay, yes. yep. And um, if you read the Bess Crawford series, Bess was a nurse trained at Queen Alexandra's Hospital in the First World War. So there were a variety of things that women could do in the war they weren't formally soldiers unless there was you know this I mean there have been instances where women impersonated men in order to to actually fight or support their husbands or something but you know that was all unofficial and in your in your last book don't I remember right that women couldn't actually be pilots in the war they could transport planes but they weren't actually fighter pilots they didn't show they weren't officially part of the RAF
1: Right, in in Britain, that's true. I think there were, in some of the other countries, they were- Right, but I'm talking to... just
0: about Britain because yes, that's yes. what you're writing about. But you did yeah. hear some women who were involved in moving planes from one place to another. You know, they did that kind of transportation thing. Yes. That, was, that was the second book, really good book, I thought. And, and one thing Stephanie does that I really want to give a shout out to is she has very good author notes at the back. So um, you can't clutter up the story with too much history. Um, if it's fiction but you can put a basis and in this book don't read it till the end but it is helpful I think when you're done with the book to read the author note and find out um, some of the factual stuff so you're you're when you're writing historical mystery you've made up people but you you do have to hew to actual events quite a lot of the time Um, Mm -hmm. and so you've done that in in this book because there's a missing there's a ship that nobody quite knows what's going on with the ship and there's a couple of people or at least one person missing from the village and nobody knows what's that but tell us first how do you pronounce the village because this is in its way a village mystery um it's brick brickendon berry.
1: oh no that's not the village the village is pipley pipley yes and, and the, okay. the manor house is brickendon very yes. oh okay yeah. right
0: i get that that's right it is Pipley, which is a great name a Village, but where did you come up with the two names, Pipley and Brickendenberry?
1: Um Pipley, I don't know. I wanted just something quick, easy to remember. Um, just it's kind of simple. but Brickendenberry is actually a real manor house and was actually Station seventeen during the war where I mean, it was one of the special training schools. I mean, all of that part of the of the um, information in the book is accurate. So so I didn't I didn't actually come up with that, which is good because I never would have come up with brick and a berry.
0: <laughs> right. Well, no, it's a little bit it's got one syllable too many. <laughs> to yeah, practice. it does
1: feel like that. I
0: know. Just to say it easily, I was practicing. But anyway, <laughs> I wanted to em- emphasize the village part because I, some people have said that um basically olive is kind of the Miss Marple of this area. Um and you know, so. It's it's historical mystery, but when people say that, they're trying to give it a a touch of the Agatha Christie or the cozy. And, you know, Agatha Christie actually participated in both World Wars, or at least the second one. She was in um, dispensary. She was a pharmacist and or worked in the pharmacist and learned that's where she got so good with poisons. But I think I really think she gained some experience in the First World War, although I'd have to go back and look. But yeah, definitely, I thought I'd read one.
1: that as well.
0: Yeah, but definitely in the Second World War, she and Ellis um, Peters, for example, also worked. So there were an awful lot of, of things. Sorry, Ellis Peters also worked in pharmacology or whatever it was. So there were a lot of things that women did that were essential, Yes, <laughs> excuse me, to the war effort, if not, you know, actual fighting because it takes an enormous support system to keep an army
1: Absolutely, going, yes. and
0: especially when it's across the channel. I was always surprised reading both Jackie and and um, and Charles Todd's books and how close the war was. I mean, you know, it, it's not that far across the channel and you, you tend to think of England as so kind of remote
1: Isolated, and, more yeah.
0: and safe and all, but the truth is, you know, it was so close that really does make you wonder why Hitler quite never got it together there are a lot of reasons (laughs) right would be that hard today it wouldn't be hard at all um but anyway um let's talk a little bit too about before we get into this story about olive and her parents particularly her father because her father was really if i remember right he was the original pigeonier in this deal
1: right yes the pigeons were his and as he as as olive got older and Kind of became more experienced taking care of them and uh, really more interested. He kind of gave the um, training of them over to her, but but still kind of kept the the clout for himself. And he's really the reason that, well, at least Olive believes that their pigeons at the in the book one have not yet been vetted by the National Pigeon Service because he is so, uh, well, he doesn't want to relinquish them. He wants to, have them be used for the war but also he wants to kind of run his own show sort of thing decide what needs to be done and where they need to go and all of that and so they don't the nps doesn't want to deal with that and so have decided basically not to vet them and so that's what causes olive's whole um tricky situation at at the beginning of the first book
0: Right. Well, I mean, it makes more sense for you as an author to have her have a private gig, so to speak, rather than contending with the whole bureaucracy, because right,
1: yeah.
0: Olive could do some things that she probably couldn't get away with if it were actually the right. bureaucracy. So there's cover for Olive, and part of the cover is Captain Jameson Aldridge. So tell us about him, because um, he was he was well, he is part of their, you know, part of the way her role in the war works.
1: Right. So he is, um, in the first book, he's the one that shows up to kind of um, take a look at the loft, kind of assess her and the birds, and decide whether or not he thinks that they're a good fit to uh, kind of assist the missions that that are being run out of Brickendenberry, which is like right down the road from them. So um The trouble is, is that because she he tells her immediately that this, as a condition of this, is going to be that it has to be kept secret. You you can't tell your family, you can't tell the villagers. So then she basically agrees, um, but then has to come up with a reason that he will be hanging around her because he's he's a stranger and. would have no other real reason to to be there and so she decides to say that he's asked her to the village dance and then that kind of morphs into a fictional relationship between the two of them and and that at least gives him kind of cover to be coming to their to their loft or house any any time that that he needs to check up on the birds give her instructions um come and and retrieve messages from returning birds all that stuff so then at the end of the the first book there's a little more their relationship is is got another level because she is working directly in the manor uh, as a fanny so then they're kind of like um on each other's uh, um well I want to say on each other's toes but I'm not sure that's the that's the saying they're um, with each other much more of the day and and so then their relationship develops more in the second book and so more the third. <laughs> yeah
0: right so originally he's there as a as the romantic a potential romantic interest that just cover um, mm-hmm. then as often happens and as a well-worn trope in, for example romantic fiction um the initial relationship begins to morph into something more real so, you know, that's always nice in a series to have, you know, some kind of romantic thing going on. And certainly during the war, there were all kinds of romantic relationships, many of which did not survive the war. Right. But we're only in November of 1941. So you're showing good judgment and inching along. So you won't run <laughs> out of war. Before you, have to. So, you know, because, you know, the entire concept of this series so far relies on it being wartime. And it certainly could change if you write it long enough and we get into the post-war, but the pigeons would then have a different role. I think one of the things that's so interesting is that the pigeons actually had such a big role in the war. You had had some great information about, you know, the missions that they flew back from occupied Europe, um, that sometimes they were the only reliable messaging service.
1: Right. I've been super impressed with, uh, I mean, over the course of all my research and all, all the different ways that they were used yeah. for the war effort. I mean, the fact that they had like mobile lofts over in all of the, like in Africa and in Europe and in Asia, and, and they had the um, Royal Air Force de- decided that all the bombers and reconnaissance aircrafts would have at least one pigeon aboard and for emergency purposes. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty compelling argument for the pigeon, in, in my opinion, plus they were often dropped with agents. They were dropped um, as a way of gathering information on the continent because they were they were the the different organizations were having trouble getting um, timely messages back from their agents. So they just went ahead. Operation Colombo was dropping a bunch of pigeons up and down the like from Denmark to all the way to the south of France. Just to encourage just local citizens to um, write out troop movements or morale or anything that might be helpful to the um, British in kind of tailoring their efforts. So yes, they were used for an amazing, a different, a di- an amazing number and a varied, varied um, uh, activities.
0: Yeah. And they had remarkable endurance, and they could fly astonishing distances. Plus, they weren't particularly conspicuous. I mean, you know, they're just pigeons, right? So you have to, like, wipe out all pigeons in the sky if you were suspecting that one of them might be a messenger. It wasn't like they had red paint on them or something. You know, I sometimes think that, you know, what's happening in the real world is that spycraft is reverting back to old school because um, all the electronic stuff we now know could be hacked. Or you know, people can be found by phone location and all the rest of it. So, increasingly, I'm seeing in spy novels a kind of reversion, you know, to actual handwriting and you know, notes in newspapers and meeting on park benches and all. But it seems to me that you know, carrier messenger pigeons might very well be able to you know play a role in the Ukraine, for example. I don't know if you read it, but you know, they've the one things they the Ukrainians have used to locate Russian soldiers is they apparently can't stop using their phones. The Russians, that is. And so, you know, they've been able to zero in on all kinds of troop movements and stuff just by pinging all the phones. But it also seems to me that, you know, pigeons could be extremely useful. But I wonder if training pigeons really kind of fell out of fashion. Do you know whether it's still, you know, something going on in the real world?
1: It does still go on. I, I, I'm sure it's not quite as popular as it was because it was extremely popular. There were, I believe 70,000 lofts in Britain um, at the start of World War II. So yeah, I'm guessing it's significantly fallen off but there are still long distance distance pigeon racing. And I think it's pretty popular in Belgium and has become more popular in China. So yes, it's, it's definitely still being done.
0: Well, we may we may discover post whatever happens in the Ukraine, we may discover that pigeons actually had a role. We'll find out. <laughs> anyway, back to November 1941. So, Captain Aldridge, um, or she's working at Brick and Goodbury Manor. Um, and she's beginning to worry what? That she's not going to be brave enough to pull off an actual mission? Yes.
1: Yeah, so, she's I mentioned before that she's been thinking this whole time that that she's kind of not really doing her full she may not making a full contribution she's kind of monitoring her birds and doing little jobs here and there and she wants to do something that that will make more of an impact so in the last book in a valiant deceit she um had begun reading the training manual for an agent just to kind of get her get her head in the game as, as to what would be required what 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 types of things are they doing? And so then in this novel, she moves more into um, the thought that she, I mean, she wants to be, she wants Jamie to kind of give her some, some tests to see if she's really able to, to do what, what she would be required to do in occupied Europe. And so she, she, th- this happens a couple of times and then she does really start thinking about what. With with her interaction um, with with the agents that she's had in the books, she is, especially in this one because this the the operation that's being discussed in this book seems really significant in her what she's told it's really significant really dangerous, and and she begins wondering if she could um, handle being being dropped into occupied Europe, carrying out a mission. Um, making it through like an interrogation she's worried that she might betray uh, the mission or fellow agents so she's really it's a a lot of self-doubt she wonders if she can if that if that's what she's meant to do because she feels like she's capable or if she really needs to back off because she's not she's not um, really capable of doing that
0: well, I mean, the pigeon service is so valuable. She went on a national mission. Then what would happen to that whole thing? But the um, the attrition rate for for people dropped behind enemy lines and doing those kinds of things, there were women. I'm trying to remember where they trained. It was somewhere up near Scotland, I think. Anyway, they many of them hardly survived at all. Right. You know? So um, the odds were really good that if she tried to do that, she might not come back. Um, and so you have to wonder how selfish it would be for her to want to, I mean, this is just me wondering, it's not you, um, would be a fairly selfish act for her to think that she should go off and do something like that when she has this special contribution that she can make to the war. So I'm sure you'll work on that. But meantime, in the village, there appears a woman who has this, what, she wants to at least proclaim to be a special skill. So tell us about her because she, in fact, is our first victim in this book.
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, a new a new villager. Well, a couple of new villagers have shown up. Um, the one that Barb is talking about is um her, is is a spiritualist medium, and she and her husband have uh, arrived rather recently in the village. And she's kind of no one really likes her and. So kind of near the start of the novel, she kind of makes a spectacle of herself by um, kind of doing, channeling a sailor from a, from a sunken ship on the village green. And so then of course the crowd gathers and, there, and everyone is kind of uh, agog, wondering what she's talking about. Could, could it be real? Because she's um, sort of conjuring some ectoplasm and so, there's a great confusion, curiosity, and so that leads um, one of the, one of the, another villager to want her to hold a séance and and um, allow her to communicate with um, her dead sister. So then that kind of uh, transitions to the big the big event in in the village in this book, which is the right.
0: séance. Right. Well. Unsurprisingly, with news of what was happening in the war and to people who were fighting was difficult to come by, somebody with her skill set would be um, catnip to people who were starved for news and were hoping for some kind of confirmation about what might be going on with people that they cared about. Anyway, um, she dies and it's not good. Diaz Burris, you decided you would have a local constable or sorry, local. Constabulary is what I meant in the person of Diaz Burris, who maybe isn't what the best knife, sharpest knife in the drawer?
1: <laughs> no, he's definitely not. Yes, he is um, kind of classically um, the uh, inspector or, well, not inspector, the the policeman who wants everything to be easily uh solved or swept under the rug and just get on with the, the day-to-day so if he thinks there's any way of uh indicating that it's an accident or that it was a mistake or misadventure or whatever then he's that's going to be the take the the take that he, that he has and so uh, Olive can see that he is not up to the task because he is uh feels that just something went awry in in the seance and and that's that then um she feels that she basically she starts her investigation even while he's questioning uh all of all of the um guests i guess you would call it participants of the seance so she she has no patience and and she's she's known him too long i guess and she just she just gets started right off the bat you know, but that that's
0: sort of a normal thing. If you have an amateur sleuth, it almost always either they have a personal interest, somebody you know was killed that they um, had a relationship with or whatever, or or you have a sort of lack of confidence in the local police. And that way, you know, the person. I mean, sometimes if it's somebody, there's a like an anthropologist or something. There have been mystery series with um, anthropologists or whatever it is. Sometimes their expertise is going to be critical to a particular kind of a case, helpful to the police, work better than the police or whatever. Right. But Olive doesn't really have that going. So all in all, um, I think it, you know, makes sense that it's just that Burris is not quite up to the job. And besides, Olive's already solved a couple of couple of crimes. So you know she has some. Um, credentials here we'll see <laughs> how it goes. but then another person we aren't going to go much further with this but another person arrives in the village and i really love the way that he keeps popping up in mysteries of late there seems to be a lot of interest in him so who might that be
1: so yes ian fleming does make an appearance at well as lieutenant commander ian fleming he's there on an official official capacity um he I, when well, I guess let me let me say what he's there for. Um, he shows up at the manor and it is Olive's job given to her by the new officer in charge to show him around because he's interested in the the training that goes on at at the manor for agents. And the reason that he's Interested is because he is he is in the uh, naval intelligence division and he is kind of in charge of coming up with um, ways that the allied allies can get their hands on various um, intelligence like a, it could be an Enigma machine or um, documents or a, a facility itself. Um ways that like clever ways that that the allies can um, get their hands on on information or or other useful items. And so he just is kind of coming up with these sort of james bond like uh, ways of um of doing it. And he's also so that's one of his his jobs. And then he's also like a liaison between the um SOE or the Special Operations Executive, which in my book is called Baker Street, and also various others. So um, I thought it was it was absolutely conceivable that in his uh, interest in in training uh, different different uh, Royal Navy uh, persons with uh, uh, I'm sorry I lost my train of thought. His interest in training. It would, would bring him naturally to uh, Brickendenbury. And also at the same time, the uh, medium is kind of having a run-in with the Royal Navy. So he might conceivably be interested. He might be the connection, the liaison. I don't know if this is making sense. I don't want to say too much, but... Well, it,
0: it does. I think, um, you know, because there's been this enormous spate of World War II um novels and you know in romance and mystery whatever it is and and primarily they've been women's stories these are not you know fighting stories or uh, war stories but mm-hmm. there's a an enormous range of books about special things that women did during the war whether it was helping to rescue people and you know lead them over mountains or whether it was um um, you know, librarians or dealing with evacuated children or doing special intelligence work. But Fleming, so I think that's why Fleming has suddenly begun to appear again, because he was in the Navy, but he was also in special operations. And his role there, a lot of it was to be imaginative and right. to of the things uh, that he conceived of really helped win the war, especially the uh, deflection of um, German, um, he was able to to participate in a program that thought that lured the Germans into thinking the D-Day landing would be somewhere else. It was a very complicated plot
1: oh, right? And, yes, uh, yeah, yes, yes, that he was
0: involved in, but he was, he did other things like that. Yeah, and, yes. you know, basically the imagination that made him the James Bond guy right. after the war, he actually did that during the war. So, you know, most, I think for a long time, people thought that he just made everything up and, you know, didn't understand that he really did have war service and, and his job there was really to kind of do thrillers, you know, make these plots and see how it all went. So no, I I agree with you. I think it's perfectly plausible that he showed up and there was an operation being conceived of to happen in Czechoslovakia um, at the time that you're writing about, which led to, some good and really terrible things um and you know i thought i wasn't at all surprised that he that he popped in um, Good. and one of the one of the good things about him is so much of that's undocumented that you can pretty much put him anywhere you feel like because um you know he he could easily as you say have been there we don't know where he was during the entire war every minute of it
1: sure yes
0: which is helpful
1: so he that's did right it fit we, in well though hmm? He did seem to fit in well with the the story. I thought where I was going with the story, though. So I, I think it, I think um yes, could have happened. I like to think it could have happened. Well, exactly.
0: Well, um, I mean that's you know what you're doing with this series is imagining things that could have happened and um happen adjacent to things that really did happen. Right. You know, and because there's just the war is on such an enormous scale. Um, you know, it, it's possible to come up with things that could have happened in almost every theater of the war right just last year i did one about something that happened after children were evacuated from the isle of guernsey you know which i hadn't really given great thought about and there are people running bookshops and you know libraries there's seamstresses you know sewing code into dress patterns and passing it on there's a very good spanish novel about um, a woman who was a brilliant fashion designer. And part of what she did in the war was she actually sent messages to England by sewing the uh, the coat into the dress patterns.
1: Oh, very nice. You know,
0: and um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's almost limitless what you can imagine people did. Um, there was a
1: really a lot of creativity I and mean, people were so clever in how they um, managed because like, they had to be. Germany was kind of came out of the gate and all of a sudden I mean they'd been building up their their war machine and and all of a sudden they they had Europe was almost completely occupied and Britain was standing almost alone and so they really had to get scrappy and figure out some really clever unique things to try to you know keep keep their their foot in the game
0: right plus you know there wasn't all this instant communication and so forth I mean Vietnam was the first war that was kind of a a media war, there was a lot of coverage, you know, on television and so forth. And now, the Ukraine I mean, you know, it's like everybody gets to participate in it practically with constant, you know, communication and war footage and all the rest of it. And you can pinpoint where people are once again, as I say, because they have their phones. Um, and, you know, it's a totally different thing. In World War II, people could be gone for months or years out of touch, and nobody, you know, nobody had any idea. Where they were, or what was going on. And so it was possible to keep secrets in a way that I don't think would be possible now. You know, I don't think that Bletchley could ever have been kept a secret. An operation like that could be kept secret today, or some of the other things that happened where, you know, there was collaboration, like the whole thing about Coventry, for example. Um, I don't see how that would be possible today. So I think that's why it's really interesting to write about. It's kind of the last war that was you know, had all those features and after that, maybe Korea, but hardly anybody's fired up by the war in Korea. (laughs) Um, So, you know, modern warfare is dramatically different. I even think about drones as being kind of like your pigeons. You know, we got an idea that things could fly and be useful and now we have, we have even got little miniature drones that, you know, could be like bumblebees. Um, So the surveillance possible is possible today on a scale that nobody would have imagined in the second world war right yeah so you're only in november 41 and you know it doesn't take that long so what are you planning for your next book are you are you moving into 42 how fast are you going
1: um i have taken taken a a little a break from all of it i'm actually working on a um historical fiction set in set in late 45 early 46 in france and germany so yeah i'm hoping to get back to olive but um i'm my next my next book will be historical fiction
0: ah okay well sometimes you know sometimes series turn into trilogies and you know a lot depends on a number of factors i hope you'll get back to her too cuz i think she's really been an interesting character and i i found that the whole idea of the prisoners and everything has been a lot of fun. So,
1: yeah, I've really enjoyed my time uh, writing her. and and, all, and the research has been really wonderful. I'm just so, so um, glad to have learned so many interesting things that you just don't come across normally. So, yeah, I'm loving all the different World War II books that are coming out with all the the different the the little things that you otherwise maybe wouldn't have known about because they're not. About fighting, they're more about the Women's Institute or um, I don't know the the Mulberry. Um, now I can't think of the name. the The way they landed for D Day, Mulberry Harbors, something like that. Anyway, all all sorts of interesting things that I had never actually knew before starting to write these books. Well, what
0: where did you do the bulk of your research? Or you know, what kind of sources did you use?
1: Um well, I, I did read a lot of nonfiction books on various topics, um, including the women in women's institute. and and uh, um I read a, a book on um, the the different uh, codes used by agents and um, just various books, but also um, my my favorite um, source. Was the BBC? It's called BBC People's War. There there are accounts from ordinary people posted online about just what they remember about the war. So, I mean, they're searchable, but like it'll, it could just be um, someone posts about some summer evening when their village was um, bombed or something, and they'll tell everything about what they remember about it and what life was like. you know what they were doing and and everything and it's just really a fascinating like in person look snapshot of of different times and different places in in britain and it's it's just really really uh like a, a human human interest just very um like a, a little it's like almost like watching a a, a show on on PBS or something and same with mass observation where people kind of wrote diaries about their days during the war I've read some of those too those are my favorites
0: right so more intimate stuff not mm-hmm. you know Churchill writing about the war but um more right personal yeah personal stuff memoirs letters all that kind of thing you know most most of the World War II stories are not set in the United States because in fact the war was not fought in right. the United States and while there are you know, various. There's a really good book published last July about a German plot in Los started in Los Angeles, where the German Bund was really um, powerful, and it was a plot to assassinate Roosevelt and Churchill in Washington with a German agent who had to move all across the United States on a train. But those are pretty rare. Almost all World War II, most World War II stories really take place in the theaters of the war, namely Europe, or quite a lot of them in Asia or out in the Pacific. Um, so I'm guessing that's why you chose England as as the place to go rather than Maryland, let's say.
1: I Yes, I did. I wanted it to be a little bit more immediate. I mean, definitely the Americans were using pigeons as well, but um, yes, I wanted there to be a little bit more of, of um, like, the whole every everyone contributing, like the whole village was is kind of involved rather than just having an American pigeoneer, which probably, I mean, some of uh, some of the American pigeoneers came over to England and so would have been kind of there on the ground, but probably there weren't any women that did that. There they may have been tra- may have been training pigeons in America, but they probably didn't send any over. So I mean it just made everything easier to have to have her be British and and more centrally located for what was actually going on.
0: Well, no, I agree with that, but it does make it um, an extra thing for you in that you have to sort of master the British village and the British oh. idiom And all. So not only are you researching the war, but you have to do a fairly deep dive into British life. If And you're writing it not from an American, because sometimes what people do is they send an American Oh, right, right. Or an American to Ireland or something. And therefore, everything is still filtered through then. But you're actually writing about British characters, um, which means, you know, that you have to sort of overcome any American sensibility in order to do that.
1: Yes, hopefully that succeeded. (laughs) Sometimes I don't know, because, you know, certainly your research will tell you this, this and this are different between Britain and America, but then there are some like little tiny things that you, you know, you, you don't actually know unless either someone tells you or you just get lucky and you happen to find out that this word is not this word over there or this word means something that you shouldn't say over there. Or, you know, so you right. have to it's it's very difficult to to get everything to it to is difficult.
0: Of- you know, and it's not just the language, but you know, it's the routines of the day. Right, right. And, you know, um, I've just been reading Deborah Crombie's new book for um, our book lunch for her next week. I, I can't, I've forgotten that you know, tea is just endless. I mean, <laughs> anything goes on, whether it's a social call or whether it's a crisis or whether it's comfort, require whatever. It's endless tea, and I often wonder how they survive all that caffeine. I mean, you know, if you drank that kind of coffee in the course of the day, you'd be completely wired. Um, but here they are drinking tea, you know, day well, and- Now
1: it's in oh, she's not writing in the war. Never mind. I was gonna say for me, it's probably watered down considerably, but um
0: No, she's writing, you know, they're contemporary. But okay. all I'm saying is that, you know, or Americans might offer you coffee or say have a drink or offer you, you know, Diet Coke or something. In Britain, it's just tea. I mean, it's just constantly tea and it's never really served without what they call a biscuit and we call a cookie. So, you know, part of the ritual is that you get your cup of tea and on your saucer is going to be, you know, a little biscuit or you're going to get a slice of cake or something. And and so I also often wonder how they survive all the calories. You know, (laughs) when I
1: was, when I was, um, Working before I became a writer, I, I had sent over to Scotland for a work trip, and at, I think it was four o'clock. At four o'clock, I'm you know working at my computer. Four o'clock, I look up and the entire office has completely cleared out, and I'm like, "Where, where, where should all they all these people go?" Turns out, everyone at, at precisely the right time, they all mass exodus to go have tea. So. I yeah, guess.
0: You just, used to that. You do. It's the it's the pattern of the day, and not to be particularly crude, but I've spent a lot of time traveling in England. One thing I have noticed is there is, compared to the United States, an astonishing amount of public WC, which is British for you know public facility or toilet, water closet is what it is. But I mean, you, you, every village you go into, whatever its size, there are always public WCs. And I think, you know, because if they're not drinking tea, they're drinking beer or whatever is called, <laughs> the liquid pouring through. Right. You know, and it, it's so different than driving through America where, you know, you have to go to McDonald's or something right. or, it, or on a freeway. They'll occasionally be, you know, what they call it euphemistically, rest stops. But in England, you are never far. You are never far from a public convenience. So well, that's
1: good to know.
2: Wow. I still haven't
1: made it over to any I haven't visited any villages I, I did my work trip to Scotland and that's my only trip that oh, I've okay. had to the UK so well, still you moving.
0: Done, you done well it feels authentic but I actually have lived there and traveled there and um, you know I, I'm very familiar with as I say the pattern of a typical English day which is quite different than the pattern of an american day so there's a lot to learn if you're writing about a completely different culture um and of course in historical fiction you always are writing about a completely different right, culture. Yes. you know so yeah well um let's call jacob up and see if he has got any questions or comments from the audience or personal questions that he'd like to ask are you there jacob always takes a minute for the screen to there we go and the sun has gone down so you're not absolutely i can see now like yeah you. you can see
2: yeah um stephanie do you know the history of the uh, the use of pigeons for messaging uh when, when did that first um get used as a method of, of messaging because i'm sure in the ancient times it was used but pigeons specifically yeah. do you know
1: I did read that Genghis Khan used them used them to keep track of his whole empire. Um, I'm, I'm not super clear on the the timeline of all this, but um, I know I know that um, the Greeks used them for first Olympics. Um, yeah, those would be, I I think definitely the two earliest that I read about um. So I, I'm not sure if they were used prior to. I'm assuming Genghis Khan would be before. Um, I, I don't know if they were used, or I did. I don't have personal knowledge if they were used prior to that, but definitely read that he has he used them.
0: Well, I'm sure that they're they have been, they have of flying back to the same place after a while. You know, people began to realize how right. useful that could be, but I don't know. That's a good question, Jacob. You could Google it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, um, I know they were using in World War One, and um, the officers tried to have the troops uh, <laughs> stop using them, using them for target practice. Um, and they oh, had a lot of time to trying yeah. to stop them. From-
1: <laughs> oh, I didn't even hear that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I listened to a podcast about pigeons. They're really invaluable. Um, but anyway, no. is it how many books have you written, Stephanie?
1: on uh, the the all the bright ones that this is the third
2: this is the third one mm-hmm. okay we had right, a few well. questions about that how many books were there prior uh, it's we-
1: just the two
0: prior so is this your first published series
1: um no i wrote a, a few um romantic novels prior to this and under pseudonym ah, okay. but definitely my first mystery series
0: gotcha it's interesting that people often come to mystery from romance. Tess Garrison, for example, um, is somebody. She's a doctor, but she wrote a bunch of romances from Harley her. I realized that. Yeah, before she began to write. Um, I could actually come up with quite a list of people who um Linda Castillo is another one. Linda wrote a number of romances. Um Janet Ivanovich wrote a whole lot of romances before she decided to um step into thriller territory and write the Stephanie Plum books. I think romance is a really good training ground for a novelist. (laughs) I do, you know, because you get used to character and dialogue and all that stuff. And the mystery ups your plot because romance is essentially a single plot. So you know. well, yeah,
1: I had to completely change my writing style. I was a seat of your pants kind of writer when I was writing my uh, romances. And I, when I switched to mysteries, I realized that was just not going to work out between all of the juggling the different uh, suspects and the different red herrings and all of that. I I figured I had to plot everything out. And I have since plotted everything out all the chapters and it, it's actually made a, a great difference to me I uh, way more organized now and there's less rewriting so a bit total benefit for me
0: I'm looking up when carrier pitches for first use that's why I'm looking down here at my phone I can't resist now that Jacob's has the question <laughs> <laughs> as early as 1150 in Baghdad and then also as you said by Genghis Khan in 167, a regular service between Baghdad and Syria had been established by a Sultan. So um, but it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. Oh, here we go, Jacob. In the fifth century BC. Fifth century BC. Was, wow. The first network of pigeon messengers is thought to have been established in Assyrian Persia by Cyrus the Great. How about that?
1: Still going strong.
0: I love it. Good question. Isn't Google handy?
2: <laughs> well, we have a lot of comments uh, uh, from people really excited to uh, read the book, uh, but that's that's it for questions.
0: Okay, we had um, a very enthusiastic review in Publishers Weekly for Stephanie, um, and I think I printed out the one from Kirkus just to jog my memory. But I do think that people have commented about you know how well you've integrated the the history and the village mystery and you know, your characters, your history is very accurate, but your characters are very lively too. So um, it's good to know that you've gotten such great reviews. We have certainly enjoyed the series. Thank you very much for sending it to us. And um, keep me posted on what you're doing next, because I'll really be interested to see what your future work is. Okay?
1: Definitely. Thank you for having me.
0: You bet. It was really a pleasure. Thank you all. Thanks for joining us. Have a good weekend. Bye. Hello.